Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I have my friend, Deborah Howard. Deborah, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Dave. It's nice to be here. Yeah, yeah. Great. Great to have you back. Can you uh, just catch us up? What's been happening since we last talked in, in your life, in your marriage, ministry? What projects are you working on? You know, those kind of things. Well, things are about the same as uh, as they were uh, the last time. Um, my My husband and I did celebrate our 35th wedding anniversary that was a big thing um and since i've talked to you i've had another birthday my son has had another birthday my grandson so time does move on doesn't it yeah well congratulations on your wedding anniversary that's that's exciting thanks and right now i'm working on another a new book i've got a book called it's going to be called um a Quiet Confidence. Um, the subtitle is From Christian Warrior to Christian Warrior. And um, it takes about 12 of the most comforting passages of scripture and it exposes to those so that people are reminded of the promises of God and why they don't need to be warriors because of prayer, because of our access to our access to God, we can uh, be warriors. Mm. And so um, I'm on chapter four of 12. So I've got my work cut out for me. But that's what I'm working on right now. That sounds great. That sounds great. But you know, today we're going to talk about your mini book that you wrote a few years back, Help I'm so lonely. It's in that wonderful series, the Lifeline series that we're both going to be part of here soon. Um, tell us why you wrote this book, you know, and maybe if you've heard how it's been received, people have been helped by it and those things. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, Help, I'm So Lonely is the name of the book. And um, it came about because of um, a request by a friend. I'd gone to visit him in the hospital. He had lost his wife to cancer t- about two years previous to that. And he was having trouble getting back into life. He was still just uh, wrapped in grief and loneliness. Um, and he, with tears in his eyes, he said, I want your next project to be uh, to write a book about loneliness. From a Christian perspective, he said, I've been looking for books out there on this subject and I'm not seeing them. And I said, "Okay, that will be my next book. Uh, He and his wife, um, they were two of our very best friends. And so they were sort of one of these couples joined at the hip. And when she died, it was like he said it was like an amputation. And um, and he lived with this pain. Um, and I, so I promised him I would write a book on loneliness. And, um, uh, unfortunately he died before the book was published. So he never got to read it, but, uh, but I did dedicate the book to him. And, um, so that's how it, it happened. Um, it was as a favor to him. I know we, we've talked about people that, that mean a lot to us and, you know, 
it's it's good to remember the the good things you know it's it's a healthy thing to to remember uh people that made an impact on us and just be thankful for for them and uh so i i i thought this was a great little mini book it, you know wonderfully written and uh very helpful so oh you forced me with this interview to read it yesterday yeah and once again, I was so gratified because I think it's intensely helpful. And I think a lot of times uh, it's easy for people to kind of um, send the message of, okay, it's time for you to get over it, you know, that kind of message. And they're not, it's, they're not very uh, compassionate or empathetic. And um, they, everybody has their own preset um, standards for how long grieving should last and how what it should look like and um, I know that there are many many different kinds of loneliness and not all of them have to do with losing a loved one but in this case since it was Bill writing to me I mean asking me to write this I um I think it I think it does a good job of recognizing that kind of pain that people go through. I'm trying to recognize their pain and then move them along and show them by giving them some practical suggestions how to maybe re-engage in life again. And um, so, but even though this is about loneliness, it, all the suggestions that I made can be also applied to depression or grief. So it's not just loneliness. I think that it, it really covers more than just that. Yeah, as you're as you're talking there, I, I, I really appreciate what you're what you're saying about, you know, almost like feel what you feel. Don't stuff it down because I mean they've done a lot of they've done a lot of, you know, secular in the secular world, they've done a lot of studies on the impact of of stuffing down and it, it can cause mental they they say it can even cause mental illness and mm -hmm. you know, significant mental illness, your blood pressure to rise. And I mean, the body isn't meant God didn't create us to stuff our emotions down. You know, everybody deals with their emotions in, in a different way, but everybody has to figure out you know how how to process their their emotions you know for me i when i was little um my mom put me on ritalin and and uh they labeled me ADHD, adhd um in my childhood and then then in my teens they thought i was suicidal i didn't think i was suicidal but Apparently, my mom thought I was suicidal and uh, they put me on Depakote, Wellbutrin, Zoloft, which they put on. They actually put up people on cancer patients. And then funny enough, people people think this is weird when I say this, but uh, there there was basically uh, uh, God used an atheist Wiccan um, to get me off of medicine. That's that's the only way I can. That's the only way I can explain it. I got in a common grace. God used an atheist Wiccan and I got off the medicine and then I could start to feel like emotions like before i wasn't i felt numb all the time um mm -hmm. and that that crippled me emotionally um you know now now i've come i don't think that medication is bad i think that there are times when medication can be used and be helpful like i i used to be totally anti-medicine i'm not that anymore but um at the same time it, it's just one of those things where you know you have to be able to 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 not be numb to life. Like life has a way of, of beating us down. Now your story is probably not going to be like mine and God might not use an atheist Wiccan to get you off medicine. But out of that, out of that, people started realizing about six months later, I had people asking me when this is when I was in high school, 
my golf coach asked me, varsity golf coach asked me, he's like, there's something different about I'm like, um, I have Jesus. He's like, no, no, it's not that. He's like, no, people just recognize there's something different about your disposition, you know, and they've commented to me in a, in a good way. You know, I'm like, huh, thank you. You know, but over, over the years I've had to, I was like 16 when I got off the medicine. So it's been, it would have been 98. So it's been about 23 years, but it's been a learning process because for the first 16 years, I mean, I was emotionally basically numb, you know, because of the, the medicine and, you know, my mom and I have talked about it and, you know, I don't have any bad, fe- we don't have a, any bad feelings about it. Um, I'm sure she thought she was doing what was best for you at the time. She did. Um, she- my, my, I've had quite a bit of experience with uh, counseling people who are uh, depressed. And um, I agree with you when you squelch your emotions and, and you're not dealing with them, you're just not. It colors every aspect of your life. You don't you think that you're keeping it to yourself, but really it's affecting just about every area and because it's affecting you. And so I think a lot of times when people are hurting, they're looking for solutions at any cost. So they're looking at antidepressant medications and stuff like that. And as a nurse, I know that um, many times antidepressant medication is really good for people who have a chemical imbalance in their brains, who truly have a chemical imbalance in their brains. But if it's a situational depression, if it's a situational feeling of loneliness, there is not a pill in the world who is going to restore to you the joy that is available only through the true source of joy. And so if it's a situational uh, situational depression, then the solution is not through medication, but through some of the healthier uh, ways that that I've identified in this book of um, of moving through that. Yeah. Let's dive into that. Uh, what are what are some of the warning signs that someone might need additional help? You know, processing grief and loss. Well, like I said, uh, grief takes different forms for different people. So you have to. You, it, not everybody is going to. For instance, when somebody dies, I had one person that I knew who died. The next day, she was moving her husband's stuff out of the house. The next day, she was packing up his books, packing up his clothes, and getting them all out of the house because she knew that that would have have to happen eventually. And she's a very practical person. And she just said, I may as well do it now. It's not going to hurt any less later. So for me, I could not have done that. I could not have just immediately gotten everything out of the house. Mm. Other people, they hang on to every piece of clothing. They hung, hang on to every picture, every card, every everything. And so you cannot judge people's grieving. It's an individual kind of thing. But there are things that you can look at as warning signs that they are not experiencing grief in a healthy way. And one of those is if they have persistent thoughts of suicide or of self-destructive thoughts. Those are not part of a normal grieving process. I I know when your heart is broken, sometimes you feel like you could die. You feel like you would want to die. But that's different than what I'm talking about, where you have persistent, repetitive thoughts about taking your own life or doing cutting or whatever self-harm. That is not normal. And you need to seek help if those things are taking place. Another one is 
a failure to provide for your basic needs. They stop showering. They stop brushing their teeth. They stop eating. You know, um, they, they either sleep all the time or they can't sleep at all. And um, so that's one of the things that we as their friends and loved ones need to watch out for is any change in their weight. Because if they're eating their grief, that's not um, that's not helpful. Um, or if they're starving their grief, that's not helpful. That's that's not something that is a healthy way. And so sometimes you do have to intervene. And so when you see somebody who has always taken care of their grooming, you know, their the way they're dressed, the way they, they look, the way they move, and suddenly you don't you see a, a massive change in that, then that could be a time that you need to step in. Um persistent depression that it, that affects your ability to function in life if you if your depression or your loneliness is so acute that it is causing substantial disruption in the way you're able to carry out your work for instance or the way you're able to relate to other people or even the way you fit into your family structure that's not normal and so um and so th that may be a warning sign that we need to step in. And then you go from that to substance abuse. Some people, like I said, they want relief at any cost. So sometimes they turn to substance abuse. And I'm talking about alcohol, drugs, um, tranquilizers, sedatives, sleeping pills, and even food. If, if you're turning to food, as a, food can be used as a drug, you know. And um, so if you're turning to any of those things for help, that's not that's not healthy for you. That's not normal. And those could be some warning signs. And the last thing I would say, some people experience this so much, they start experiencing mental um, illnesses, like they, they hear things that other people can't hear. They see things that others don't see. And uh, they start having um, delusions and, and confusion. And if you see that happening in somebody's life, please step in and try to help because those kinds of things are not healthy grieving. Um, that, that, that shows that you have moved from healthy grieving into dysfunction. And dysfunction seems to be uh, the primary warning sign. Yeah. One thing, one thing that I think is really, really helpful, and I don't think it's utilized enough or even talked about enough. It's just the place of the local church and even friends in the local church. Because I know like for me, just, you know, having somebody to talk with or whatever, uh, often that'll be the, and just sharing with them, hey, this is what's happening or whatever. That's just been so big for me. Um, you know, some people think, oh, well, I have to give that person advice. It's like, for me, I don't really need the advice. I just want somebody to l sit there and listen. Mm -hmm. Maybe maybe sometimes they're going to offer advice in the in the course of conversation. And, and, and I'm okay with that. Like, I'm not saying that. But I just think that's such a underutilized, under-talked about aspect in care in the church um maybe i'll write a book on it at some point but you know it's just it's just so i know we talked about it like last time too and i just think when we talk about loneliness i mean you just can't you can't every every single one of us needs friends that you know maybe we don't need the word of encouragement we just need the we just need the listening ear you know and we need to be heard and 
You're right. Well, we'll cover this when we get to the practical suggestions. But um, yeah, a lot of times we need to be heard. We don't need to be lectured and we don't need to be preached to. Uh, when our hearts are breaking, that's not particularly the most effective or considerate thing you can do. Uh, when our hearts are breaking, if if there's somebody who can listen to you without being eager to share their own story, you know, um, just listen to what you have to say. It's hard enough to talk, but when somebody is completely taking your story away and bringing their story into it, it can be very frustrating to try to talk to people if they don't know how to listen. People think they need to be, they need to do something. They need to help you in some way. They don't realize that just merely by listening, you're helping. Yeah, that's, that's true. Well, tell us a little bit about this uh, questionnaire you developed on loneliness. I thought that was particularly very helpful. <laughs> um, when Bill asked me to write this uh, book, at first, I didn't know if I'd be able to because I don't recall a time in my life when I've been lonely. Uh, I went directly from my parents' house to uh, college to a dorm where I was with people, then to being married, to having children, to now those children are gone, but I'm still married. And, and so I've never actually lived by myself. So I started thinking that maybe I wasn't the one to write this book. But I do know a lot of people who have... Um, been bereaved or who have had periods of loneliness in their life, I, I started thinking, why don't I devise a questionnaire and send it out to people and see how they dealt with it, whether it was successfully or not successfully. And these people were at varying uh, varying stages in their, uh, in their grief or, or loneliness process. So I sent this questionnaire out and... I think I sent out like 40 or 50 of them. Um, and then when I, when I got them back and I started seeing people's responses to the questions, I was amazed at how many um, differences there were between these people. But I was also amazed with how many similarities there were. So I started looking at these answers to these questions that I put out. And I did, uh, in, in chapter one of this book, I did list the questions that I had asked them. And then I tried to give the reader a, a, a range of responses so that I think they'll be able to identify with some of the ways these people answered. Um, so it, it the questionnaire was huge in uh, establishing the foundation for writing this book. That's really good. Really good. I really, I really, really like it. How does the Bible address loneliness? At first, um, I, I, not hardly anything came to mind. So I started researching the scriptures and studying. And um, I was, <laughs> it's astounding how many passages there are in the scriptures uh, that deal with uh, loneliness or pain, angst, anxiety, um, depression, you know, especially in the Psalms, you, you see it uh, many, many times. It's King David, but and he wrote these Psalms, and they and it just expresses his utter depth of his depression or loneliness or fear or whatever. And then, but but one thing about that is that the scriptures hardly ever leave it there. If you read the rest of the Psalm, you see that it always ends in praise uh, for God because they remember His kindness. They remember who he is. 
And uh, and I've, I've included uh, in the book many of these passages that deal with this. And I think the reader will, again, be able to identify with some of these intense emotions that are expressed in the scriptures. Yeah, that's really good. You know, as you're talking, I was just remembering an article I wrote on immutability, the unchanging nature of God, essentially. And I mean, if you think about it, that the immutable character of God, just if you understand what that is, what that'll do is it'll help you to face your loneliness. Because like he passes like Hebrews 13, 5 and, and 9 tell us Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forevermore. There's the immutable character of God. He is unchanging. You know, we're we're changing because he's unchanging, you know, and and that that actually helps us in the midst of loneliness uh, to see. I, um, here's, a, here's a steady anchor for our souls. Yeah, go ahead. I, I heard a sermon by D.A. Carson one time about um, going through true um, adversity with a godly attitude. And uh, he says, God, he was talking about the James 1 passage about God does not change. He does not change like shifting shadows. Um, and he, he said, God does not wake up on the wrong side of the bed. He does not wake up and, and have it out for you one day and not the next. Um, that God's unchangeability is, is, is really, like you said, it's one of the mainstays of the Christian faith because, you know, this is not a fickle God. He is the same faithful, strong, loving God that uh, he always is. And people like to say that he he does change, but uh, or that they, he's got it in for them or something like that. That is never the case um, for a believer. He never has it against you. He never has a bad day. He never wakes up grumpy like we do. So we can't attribute to God the things that happen with us. Yeah. Well, how does the sufficiency of Christ help address our need to grow in contentment? Well, you know, we covered this in the last uh, interview we talked about. Um, but I think that the presence of God is a the presence of Christ with you is a solution to every problem. Um, and there's an exercise I do sometimes with people that I'm counseling where I have them, they're telling me about this horror, these horrible situations and they're, and, and, and then they are very emotionally distraught at those times when they're telling me. And sometimes I'll have them just close their eyes and imagine opening a door to this most glorious, radiant room where the light is just pouring forth. And in the middle of this room stands Jesus Christ. And they walk towards him. And when they get close, they look up into his face and he reaches out his hands to them. They take his hands and then he wraps them in a strong embrace. Well, when you're picturing through every step of this, and then picturing you in the embrace of Christ with him enveloped around you. How important is your situation in light of that? And I think that even though that's imagination, um, that we can do that because we can still spend time with him. And we do it through prayer. We do it through study. We do it through knowing who he is by what he says in his word. And so that self-sufficiency of Christ is the source of all comfort. And, um, and you know, a lot of times we view our, our situations as the most dire thing that's happening. And we can't, um, we can't believe other people are still walking around, talking and laughing, 
when your whole life has come crashing down. And I think that's a normal, uh, a normal thing. Um, but when you think about who Christ is and you think about the overarching view of the scriptures and you, you look at your own situation through the lens of scripture, through the lens of God's sovereignty, and you realize that this is no matter how painful, it's a stop along the way and how he's molding you and bringing you along in your life. And the very things that um, that you would never script if you were writing that, like losing a loved one or losing your job or becoming or having to file bankruptcy or any of those kinds of things that, that are, are very tough. They're designed for you for a purpose. They're not frivolous. And they, they're designed to make you stronger, better, and to help you move along in your spiritual walk. Many times they're designed to help you be able to comfort somebody else who's going through a similar problem that you are. And um, if you had not had that experience, you would not be in a position to help them. So um, so I think the sufficiency of Christ is everything. Yeah. Um, and um, that's why I encourage people to stay in the scriptures. You know, you may not you may not feel like studying that day. Uh, you may God may seem far off to you, but <laughs> there's this uh, you've seen it, I'm sure, on marquees and stuff. If God seems far away, guess who moved? Hmm. It wasn't God. You know, right? right. So uh, he's always he's always there for his people. We have access to him, which is such a privilege. Mm -hmm. And he can be there in a real way when you are going through pain and and suffering and loneliness. So good. So good. I've been, um, you know, working on that. I think we've talked about it. I've told people I'm working on this book on contentment and but what's interesting is I've been reading Philippians 4 again and again and again. Things, you know, when you read the scriptures over and over again, it, things start to pop, at least for me. I don't know, especially like in context, that's where my training is in hermeneutics, like academically. And so when, as I do that, things really pop. And one thing that's really stood out in in verse five of Philippians four is it says the Lord is at hand. Everything else that he says that follows the theological reason that, you, you know, you can be anxious for nothing. It's right there. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. He's present. He's, you know, we know he's everywhere at all times in all places. He knows our thoughts. He knows the hairs on our head. He knows the length of our days. But everything that follows, he says, is because of that truth. The Lord is at hand. That's a theological underpinning for everything. Why we, why we're not anxious for anything, why we have, you know, the peace of God, uh, why we, why we can pray, why we can give thanksgiving, uh, why we can make our requests known to God, uh, why, why we can guard our hearts and minds in Christ, why we can think in a way that honors him, why we can be content, you know, because like you said of the sufficiency of Christ, but everything, everything is wrapped up in that, in that idea to Paul. It's, it's just like, it, the more I'm thinking about it, I'm just like, wow, it's it's really mind blowing. You know, it's a beautiful concept. Yeah. He says, three, don't three be words, three words. And yet, <laughs> boom, you know, like you would read that and be like, no, no, that's not it. You know, that, that's the that's the whole idea. The whole crux of the, the everything that he's talking about is it goes back to that. Yeah, um, because he tells us, you know, do not be discouraged. Um, I am with you. You know, uh, he I, I recently read. 
Joshua, he uh, he he says that over and over and over again to try to encourage his people. Uh, do not be discouraged. You know, don't be afraid. I'm with you always. Um, and the, and he makes the same promises in the New Testament as well. You know, that is one beautiful aspect of our relationship with God is the direct access we have to him. Mm, so good. What are some strategies that can help someone to process their loneliness? Um, well, there are there are several that I covered in the book. One of them is to spend time with people. I know what you're going to say. You're going to say when people are lonely, sometimes the, the thing they want to do least is spend time with people because people being with people are draining to them. And they feel, sometimes they feel worse after being with people than they did before. But I'm still going to say they need to spend time with people. If you are isolating yourself, what you're doing is you're turning inwards. You're turning in, in inside. And um, when you turn inwards, uh, there's an abyss there. You know, when do you ever stop falling? Um, it's only when you're giving out that um you know like when you when you are with people what that forces you to do is think outside yourself for just a little while and to think about somebody else one thing that i suggested in here is um to go out to lunch with a friend and they may and the, and the, they may say and and i've had counselees say this i just don't feel like being with anybody i'm terrible company i don't i don't think i can do it you know and i will say do it anyway and then what they do, they come back and they say, well, I did that, but I felt worse afterwards than I did before. I was distracted. I couldn't listen. I don't think I'm going to do it anymore. I said, no, you need to go do it again. Sometimes it takes two or three times of doing this, of being disciplined to spend time even one-on-one -on -one with people. And then you realize finally, hey, guess what? I'm actually enjoying talking to these people. Or guess what? I actually care what's going on in their lives instead of focusing so much on my own. And little by little, if you continue, little by little, it helps you get out of this funk of loneliness and depression and isolation that you feel. So I would say, even if you don't feel like being with people, be with people. That's a very important, that's a very important strategy. Um, another is, um, I'll just mention this one because it's so obvious in my, in my, my brain right now because, uh, you know, I've got this window here. I keep looking out there, but uh, the trees are absolutely glorious right now. So many colors and the leaves are so intensely red and yellow and brown and rust. And, and it sometimes just takes your breath away. So another strategy that I've listed is to spend time in nature, to just use your senses to forget about your problems just for a little bit and to use your senses. What are you smelling? Do you smell a salt breeze? Do you, do you smell pine in a pine forest? And, you know, or listen, listen, use your ears and listen to the sounds of nature and then just look all around you because guess what? God is the greatest painter who ever existed. Mm. And um, being in nature has a tendency to nurture and nourish people. If you're locked up in your house all the time, you can forget that it's day or night. You can forget that there are moon and stars. You can forget that there's beautiful sunshine and white fluffy clouds. So don't 
lock yourself in your house, figuratively or literally, go outside and experience what God has given us in this creation. Let it nurture you. So that's another one of the strategies that I've talked about. Yeah. You, as you're talking, I'm, I'm thinking about, I remember there was a, when I was involved with campus ministry, this is just out of high school. So 2000, 2001. And, um, there was this pastor I would meet with and uh, we would talk and we would just talk about theology and life. And he'd ask me how I was. And so towards the end, I, he, I would start sharing about, you know, you know, toward maybe like 40 minutes in, you know, we had talked about theology and, and then I felt comfortable to talk about what's going on. He's like, he would say, and I remember this, he would say, I wish you'd started sharing about what was happening with you the beginning of our time together. And I thought about, I thought about that and it hit me. You know what he's really asking? He's really asking me, would I just please open up and, and start at the beginning, just be comfortable with him. And, you know, there, there is a sense in which you can overshare with people. So I'm not, I'm not saying like you go and you, you know, to somebody you just met and go, hello, I'm a beautiful flower. You know, like, uh, I've got, the next number of things you list like everything and the person's like, holy smokes, you know, you just like, I had no idea. I don't, I don't, I don't know, you You know, like there's an appropriate level like of, of sharing. Absolutely. But, yeah. But like, like, you know, it just hit me like one day, I don't even remember when it hit me, but sometimes, you know, things that happen, you know, you think about it or it comes back to your memory or something jogs your memory. And it was one of those moments for me where I just recognized, you know, I need to really work on that. And that was really actually one of the most helpful things for me uh, that somebody mm-hmm. could really say, because, you know, he was meeting to hear, not not just talk about theology, but to talk about our lives. And, you know, so so if somebody's like interested in you and investing in you, the, the same kind of thing in, applies to loneliness. Don't just... Like you said, don't just lock yourself in your house. Don't just, you know, shut down emotionally. You know, I'm reminded of, you know, I just had a good, really good friend die. And uh, sometimes even with my parents, I have a really, really bad day. And I'm like, you know, I don't know if I, I feel so emotionally numb, like on a Sunday, for example. I'm like, I don't even want to, I'm not going to get any, when I get into this kind of frame of mind, like going and sitting at, at, at church and even worship music and the sermon, as bad as it sounds, I I don't get anything out of it. It's like I might as well not even be there, to be to be honest. My wife's like, you know, I know that when you're in that mood, I just want to encourage you to go, you know, with me. And and I do, I do go with her. Um, you know, I didn't think I would be able to go the day that I that I, he I knew he died. Um, it's a small group, but I was so glad I did because. And I even said to her, I said, you know, Mike would have wanted me to be here tonight. I actually died when I, when he was, when we were there and at the small group. And that was, that was good to be around people in, in those moments. And, you know, so don't, don't, but guess the point that I'm making is if somebody asks you how you are, don't just, you know, brush that aside and just think, oh, you know, they're, they're trying to be intrusive. Maybe, maybe they are, but you know what? Don't take it that way. Um, you know, like I did many years ago now, just, just share maybe a, a little bit of what's happening with you, you know, cause they're probably asking because they're genuinely concerned for you and wanting to know what's happening and how they can help and how they can pray or how they can pray for you. Some of these things just, they've helped me. And that's what I would 
probably say to help loneliness. And the other big thing is um, that can help loneliness is to make a practice. You know, life is short. Make a practice of saying meaningful things to people that mean a lot to you and just do it over and over again for the rest of your life. You know, I think I think when my grandpa died, you know, I got that out of it and it was reinforced when my when I got married and learned my wife's story, which is pretty tragic, uh, God's story in her life. And it just was reminded me, okay, say the most meaningful things now because you don't know when that person's going to die. And so just reminded of that even a month ago, a day before my dear friend died, I. I texted him meaningful things and I would do that as a practice. Um, but I, I got to do that and it helps with to deal with the grief because you said the things that mean the most to them. And, and so when, if they die, you've said what matters most, you know, you've said you're, you're, you've kept saying you're the things that mean the most. And so you don't just store it up until like some people, Oh, I'm going to say those things when that person dies, like say them now. And keep right. saying them over and over and over again. So, and I'll, 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 I'll keep hammering that, guys, on this podcast because it, it's so important to do. It's just so important to do. Yeah. Don't be one of those people who say, I wish he knew how much I cared for him, or I wish he knew how much he meant to me in my life, or I wish he knew how, how instrumental he was in my life. You know, those are not things you want to save up for when a person dies. You know, um, try to live without regrets. And I decided a long time ago, and people know that I'm a very gushy person, and and um, they know that I'm very affectionate, and I tell people all the time, I love you, I think you're beautiful, I think you this and that. I, I don't keep those things in <laughs> because I don't want to be one of those people that said, I wish they knew how much I really cared for them. Um, so people know I'm kind of sappy, but uh, they love me anyways. So <laughs> wonderful. I love it. Love it. Well, how can the local church help those facing loneliness? Well, I do, I do think the local church has a responsibility to help their flock uh, when they're sick or when they're down. But there's also a responsibility that each member of that flock has to let their elders or the leadership in their church know what they're going through. A lot of times, like you said, people will ask you, you'll go to church and your pastor will say, hey, how are you doing? And you say, fine, fine, fine. You know, this this fine, it seems to um they, they think that you actually mean what you're saying, you know, and you should mean what you're saying. So um, I, I think when you're saying fine, that's really you putting a mask on. And if your elders don't or, or the leadership of your church, if they don't know what you're going through, they sort of can't be held responsible for not ministering to you. So I think the, the first thing you can do is let somebody know what you're going through. Let somebody know that um, that you need, you have needs right now, spiritual needs. And you know what? I know a lot of clergy. I know a lot of elders and people in leadership roles in the church. They long to be there for their their flock. They long to help. They want to. They want you to let them know what's going on with you. And especially in a, in a large church like, like ours, um, I guess 
care groups or community groups or whatever you call them, um, uh, those are the, 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 the groups that find out what's going on maybe first. But you need to let the, the, the leadership know because they can't help if they don't know there's a problem. Now, after they know there's a problem, Yes, let them be the hands and arms and the heart of God towards you. Mm. Um, if you need counsel, let them provide it. If you need, if you have physical needs, let them let them provide that for you because that's what they're there for. They're they're not called shepherds for nothing, and the sheep depend on the shepherd for everything. Mm. Um, we have a great shepherd. We depend on him for all things, but he is also Put your shepherds at your church over you. Let them know when there's a problem and then let them minister to you. Too many times people's pride gets in the way. They don't want their pastors to know they're struggling. They don't want their pastors to know what shape they're actually in. And so they wear this mask that says, oh, fine, I'm doing fine. And you, you've got to let people in, like you were saying, it's important to let people in and let people know that you have needs right now and let them fulfill those needs. So it's a two-way street. Yes, the church has a responsibility, but you also have a responsibility. Yeah. Now in a small church, you know, that may not be an issue because everybody knows everybody's business <laughs> in a small church. But I go to a large church and if people did not let people know what was going on a lot of times that would that would go undetected that's really good there's two things i think i would add to that one recognize that that the that the church is not the place where like you're saying it, it, it it's the place where you can drop the mask drop the facade and be who you are you know and and second i would say to pastors or even any whether you're a deacon or an elder or a pastor or you're just serving in the church especially the pastor preaching or pastors preaching depending on you know how many you have from the pulpit tell the people hey you know if you have something going on i, I would love to hear about it you know I'll, i want we're here to walk alongside of you and that just reinforces a culture of care and they're more likely people are more likely over time to be like hey these aren't just words that they're going to see it in action. You know, like if you have mm -hmm. a, if you're in the hospital, we want to know about that. If you're, if your marriage is struggling, we want to know about that. You know, um, husbands, you know, encourage your wife, you know, to, to be involved with other ladies and to share about, don't just, you know, ladies talk, right. <laughs> you know, encourage your wife to share you know issues and don't be afraid of the consequences if you guys are having issues in your marriage don't be afraid uh guys of, of your wife sharing about those and don't be afraid to share those with with other guys like you know like you said pride we, we got to drop the pride we got to drop the right. facade like if we're the the church is a place where we should come be able to come as christians and to receive I mean, we're just supposed to receive love and care there. The small group is a great place for that to happen. And that's where most pastors would first want that to happen. And then the pastors would become involved at, at some point after the group has cared for that individual. Now, I'm not saying that the pastor isn't primarily responsible for them, but you know, in, in, in most churches, even small churches, they have small groups for that purpose. And so 
if you're leading a small group, you know, if you see somebody that's sharing repeatedly over and over again, realize that you're part of your job there, what they're telling you, you have to pay attention to what people are saying. They're, they're going to give you opportunities to, to minister to them. Pay attention if somebody is week in, week out, or even every other month or whatever, you know, because sometimes people won't share because they're like, if I say that over and over again, then somebody's going to think badly of me. But if somebody is saying something to say, hey, can we get together and talk? Um, you know, you're not in trouble or anything like that. Just, hey, I noticed that you're sharing about this. I want to hear more about that. You know, I want to I want to come alongside you. I want to put an arm around your shoulder. The same thing with like, the, the, just, then just sit there. One of the most effective things that I learned from Mike, my dear friend, he would just sit there and he would listen. He would, he would very rarely say much. Although if he did, I'd say, you know what, brother, the, the choir needs preaching to, so you, you go right ahead. You just go ahead and preach. And, and we would laugh every time he said that because he, he knew that I knew whatever he was going to tell me, I probably knew, which is okay. But I still need the preaching too, you know, like, but, but that's like, that's like such a big thing. And then he would put his hand on my hand and pray for me. And that's such a powerful thing. Like that communicates love. It communicates care. Uh, Then he would come and, you know, obviously us being guys, he would give me a hug. And, um, you know, those are the kind of things that build trust and communicate love and care. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's wonderful. It honors Christ that when we, when we do these things. And so yeah, those are, those are some things I would say to, to, to small group leaders, to pastors, to even biblical counselors, obviously, if you're a guy, <laughs> and I'm not saying you, you go and counsel a woman and then you put your arm around her and give her a hug, you know, or put your hand on another woman other than your wife's hand or anything like that. But, you know, like, yeah, just be appropriate. Use some common sense in that. But at the same time, like show, be intentional in that, like, you know, um, there's a way mm-hmm. to do it. Like, you know, even, even with guy and women interactions, you can ask your sister in Christ, how are you doing? You know, um, you can be a friend in, in an appropriate way with your sister in Christ. And, and we need that. Like, you know, we need one another way more than, than we than we even think, you know, I, I've, I, over the last, I don't know, decade or so, I, I've become more and more, uh, recognized this. And, and, uh, that's why, that's why I, you know, pers- when I, we've moved three times in the last four years and every time I've pursued accountability, cause I need it. I need friends that are, that are going to be there for me. And I know that through the stuff that my parents are going through. And, and I know that I need it because there's going to be days when I'm like a, a wreck, just an absolute wreck. And those are the days when I really need to lean hard on, on those who, who care about me. And, and, you know, the church is there for that. And our friends are there for that. And so be that, be that friend who listens, who cares, who loves, and is uh-huh. really intentional in, in that. You know, you, I think every Christian wants to be used by God. I, I really believe that. And that's how you can be used by God in it. You, you may not have a huge blog or a podcast or, or whatever, and who cares? You're like, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me. And people think that I have that. So um, it doesn't matter, you know, just be that friend and you can be used by God. So yeah, either, I mean, we could go on and on with that. So <laughs> you get me started on that. We won't end. We won't, we won't stop. We, we'll just keep going for a while. And I'll be like, oops, I went a little too far. <laughs> I think it's your goal to make me weepy today. So 
I'm um, sorry. Well, when you were talking about listening, I just want to say that sometimes you have to read between the lines. Sometimes people have a, a tough time uh, expressing themselves. They may not feel comfortable doing it. And um, but God gave you a just a, a, a brain that can use discretion mm. and you can discern what's going on behind the comments. And then you clarify by actually asking them. And sometimes it requires reading between the lines to get to the pain that they are trying to hide. But most of the time, they're not hiding it very well. <laughs> not if you're using discernment and really trying to listen to them. Yeah, that's that's an important uh, an important issue. Oh, that's so good. So good. Where can people go to find out more about you online, on social media or otherwise, friend? God bless you, you know. <laughs> well, um, I do have a website. It's uh, www.debrahoward.net. And you can uh, you can keep up with what I'm doing on there. And uh, also you can friend me on Facebook uh, because um, I do post announcements and uh, interviews and um, uh, new books and things that are going on in my life as a writer. And you might also get to see some awfully cute pictures of my grandson. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. so you can, you can find me on Facebook. Um, also on your, on your website, I believe I've got a, uh, uh, some articles and things like that. Yeah. Yep. Good to have you writing. Good to have you writing for us. Uh -huh. Well, yeah, the uh, the other thing would be um, to pick up any of my books, because I'll tell you what, this may look like a book to you, but this is really my heart. If you want to see my heart, this is what it looks like. Uh, so just pick up any of my books and I, I think you'll you'll learn more about Deborah Howard than you ever wanted to know. <laughs> uh, that's wonderful. That's true. That's true. You know, there's a lot, and I always say this at the end, there's a lot that we could talk about. We never cover everything. Uh, so we really do skim the surface of these interviews, but, you know, hopefully what we've said has been helpful. And just as we wrap up, do you have any takeaways for us? I do have a couple of things I want to say. Number one, I know you see me dabbing my eyes. Don't be afraid of tears. Don't be afraid to cry. Um, a lot of people think that that indicates a weakness, a spiritual weakness if they're crying. And they, they try to hide that. They try to suppress the tears. But it's not a weakness to cry because, I mean, even Jesus shed tears. And it's not, a, it's not wrong. There's, there's no shame in that. So I encourage people, if the tears well up, cry. <laughs> Crying is therapeutic. You know, um, many times I'll tell them, cry ugly, you know, when, it, when this feeling hits do big blubbering sobbing ugly crying and get it out of your system and then don't stay there but get up and go about your life until the next time this happens and i think you'll see that if you give yourself over like you were saying give yourself permission to feel what you're feeling um i think you'll find that those episodes happen less and less often but if you never give vent to that it may it may happen quite a quite a bit so i'm just saying don't be afraid or embarrassed to cry um it would be ridiculous say to live with somebody for 50 years 
and love that person with all your heart, they die and you never shed a tear. Um, you know, a lot of times I've said this before, but people give you more grace when you lose a pet than they do when you lose a spouse. And their expectations sometimes influence how you allow yourself to feel. Don't do that. Don't let anybody else control that. So give yourself to feel, give yourself permission to feel what you're feeling and do it with your whole heart. Um, and then don't stay there, but pick yourself up and go about your life. Um, and the second thing is that I've, I've found uh, this not only as my experience with, with people in counseling or my experience with friends and family, but also as a result of that questionnaire I sent out, a lot of people start feeling guilty when they start recovering. Um, they feel guilty if they actually enjoy something and they let their guilt blackmail them into, into staying in that dark place. They feel like they're betraying their spouse if they start to move along in life. Please do not feel like that. Please try to work through that because if your spouse or the person that you are that you are are missing the most, if they could talk to you, they would not say, live your life as a martyr for me. They would say, please move on with your life. I want you to be happy. I want your life to mean something. So, you know, they would be the last person that would want you to hole up in your house and build build walls around your heart and feel guilt when you start feeling joy again, they want you to live a joyful life. So I would just caution you about those two things. Don't be afraid to cry and try not to feel guilt when you start being able to move on in your life. It does not indicate that you don't love them anymore. You will always love them. They will always be a part of your life. They will always have that impact that they left on you. But you don't have to demonstrate that by staying in a in a mourning or a lonely situation for the rest of your life. Go ahead, take a step, move forward. One thing I would say about this book is that when I give you the when I give you the, the helpful suggestions in the last chapter, it's not so much about doing that activity, but doing that activity will lead you to the, the concept that life does go on. And we forget this when we're in intense loneliness or depression. We forget that life is moving on. It does for other people, but we don't perceive it happening to us. So I'm just <laughs> I'm just saying. These activities that I've suggested you do, the main point is so that you would remember life does go on and help you to find joy in the life that God has given you. That is uh, that is wonderful. I mean, really, that's really, really good. I think that wraps up our episode. Thank you so much for your time, guys. We've been talking today with my friend Deborah Howard about her mini book, Help, I'm So Lonely. It's part of the Lifeline miniseries that is so excellent. I cannot recommend it enough for you. I encourage you to pick up this one and another one. They're very cheap, so they don't cost you much, but they will really help you. But thank you so much, Deborah, for your time and for your friendship and ministry. Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for inviting me on the show. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. 
If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.